You are listening to The North Podcast, a ministry of Mount Perrin North in Marietta, Georgia. Hey, good morning, folks. How are you today? It is good to see you. Thanks for showing up on a rainy morning and uh, such a great presence of the Lord that's in this place during worship. And uh, we're beginning a brand new sermon series today, and I'm excited about that. We're talking about some difficult questions uh, that people want to ask God. This name of the series is simply, Why God? And today we're going to start off with, Why do bad things happen to good people? All right, let's start off there. I want you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Daniel chapter 8, okay? Daniel chapter 8. I'm going to read to you probably an unknown portion of Scripture for some of you, a strange portion of Scripture for some of you, and we're not just going to get a little bit of it, we're going to get all of it today, okay? I want to read to you the whole thing, and, um, and then we're going to talk about what God actually does during difficult moments and what God is accomplishing, even when it looks like things are out of control. So in Daniel chapter eight, starting at verse one, it says, during the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, I, Daniel, saw another vision following the one that had already appeared to me. In this vision, I was at the fortress of Susa in the province of Elam, standing beside the Ule River. As I looked up, I saw a ram with two long horns standing beside the river. And one of the horns was longer than the other, even though it had grown later than the other one. The ram butted everything out of its way to the west, to the north, and to the south. And no one could stand against him or help his victims. He did as he pleased and became very great. And while I was watching, suddenly a male goat appeared from the west, crossing the land so swiftly that he didn't even touch the ground. This goat, which had one very large horn between its eyes, headed towards the two-horned ram that I had seen standing beside the river, rushing at him in a rage. The goat charged furiously at the ram and struck him, breaking off both its horns. Now the ram was helpless, and the goat knocked him down and trampled him. And no one could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The goat became very powerful, but at the height of his power, his large horn was broken off. And in the large horn's place grew four prominent horns, pointing in the four directions of the earth. Then from one of the prominent horns came a small horn whose power grew very great. And it extended toward the south and the east and towards the glorious land of Israel. Its power reached to the heavens where it attacked the heavenly army, throwing some of the heavenly beings and some of the stars to the ground and trampling them. It even challenged the commander of heaven's army by canceling the daily sacrifices offered to him and by destroying his temple. The army of heaven was restrained from responding to this rebellion, so the daily sacrifice was halted and truth was overthrown. The horn succeeded in everything it did. And then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple in heaven's army be trampled on? And the other one replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the temple will be made right again. As I, Daniel, was trying to understand the meaning of this vision, someone who looked like a man stood in front of me, And I heard a human voice calling out from the Ule River, Gabriel, tell this man the meaning of this vision. As Gabriel approached the palace where I was standing, I became so terrified that I fell with my face to the ground. Son of man, he said, you must understand that the events you have seen in your vision relate to the time of the end. And while he was speaking, I fainted and lay there with my face to the ground. But Gabriel roused me with a touch 
and helped me to my feet. And then he said, I am here to tell you what will happen later in the time of wrath. What you have seen pertains to the very end of time. The two-horned ram represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy male goat represents the king of Greece, and the large horn between its eyes represents the first king of the Greek empire. The four prominent horns that replace the one horn show that the Greek empire will break into four kingdoms, but none is great as the first. And at the end of their rule, when the sin is at its height, a fierce king, a master of intrigue, will rise to power. He will become very strong, but not by his own power. And he will cause a shocking amount of destruction and succeed in everything he does. He will destroy powerful leaders and devastate the holy people. He will be a master of deception and will become arrogant. And he will destroy many without warning. He will even take on the prince of princes in battle, but will be broken, though not by human power. This vision about the 2300 evenings and mornings is true, but none of these things will happen for a long time. So keep this vision a secret. Then I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for several days. Afterward, I got up, performed my duties for the king, but I was greatly troubled by the vision and could not understand it. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. I pray that you would anoint the words you've given me to say today as they go forth. and I want our ears to hear them, hearts to receive them, so that we may trust you more deeply. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen and amen. So question for you. How many of you, that was the first time you've ever heard of that in your life? Let me see your hands. Okay, very good. How many of you hadn't read that in a long time? Let me see your hands. How many of you wish I wouldn't have read it this morning? Let me see your hand. It's a strange passage. It's a passage from the book of Daniel, which is a history book, but also a prophecy book. We're starting this series on questions that we want to ask God and difficult questions that God has answers to. And I guess the first thing that we need to approach is this. Is it okay to ask God why? Is it okay to ask God questions? And the answer is yes. God is not afraid of your questions. He's not afraid of what you're going to ask him. You don't terrify God with your thoughts and your phrases. This is not like a mom and a dad or a teacher with a kid that asks a question you don't have an answer to, right? God's not afraid of that. As a matter of fact, the Bible is filled with representations and examples of people asking God questions over and over again. In the book of Ecclesiastes, the wisest man who has ever lived, Solomon, asks God difficult questions over and over and over again. Habakkuk chapter one, verse two, Habakkuk cries out to God, asking when God is finally going to hear him. In Job chapter three, Job asks God, why was I ever born if I'm going to go through this much trouble in my life? Jeremiah chapter 12, verse 11, Jeremiah wonders why the way of the wicked prosper and the treacherous thrive. Psalm 22, David asks the question, my God, why have you forsaken me? And why are you so far from saving me? John chapter 20, one of the disciples, Thomas, after Jesus rises from the dead and others had seen him, says, I will not believe until I see Jesus and I can put my finger into the nail print hands and my hand into his side. Even in the book of Revelation at the very end of time, when all things are happening at the very end, John writes that in chapter 6, verse 10, that those who were slain for their faith question God asking, how long till you avenge us? 
over and over again. People asking God questions. Psalm 62 verse 8 invites us to pour our hearts out before the Lord and ask him. It's okay to ask God questions. He's not intimidated by those things. There are two questions, though, that are inappropriate to ask God. And some of you are going, probably need to write these down right now. Let me just go ahead. <laughs> First one's this. It's okay to ask God why. What's not okay is to ask God why me. Because that indicates entitlement. That makes you think that others can go through it, that other people may suffer, that other people may endure hardships, but I shouldn't have to. I should be the exception to whatever else is going on. The second question is this, why should I? Why should I listen to God if I'm having to go through this? Why should I do what God says if he's making me go through this hardship and suffering? That is a question of obedience or disobedience. You can ask God why, but that's not a condition of obedience. Here, here, right or wrong, let me just tell you, here's how my dad raised me, how I raised my kids. Um, I don't think they're in therapy. I, I haven't seen the bills. Here, here's what I know. I was taught, I taught my kids, you can always ask me why to understand. You can never ask me why to obey. You obey because authority. In this life, there is spiritual authority. There's there's. Um, earthly authority in, in, in government. There's family authority. It's okay to ask why for understanding, but not for obedience. I've always told them, listen, you're going to do what I ask you to do because I ask you to do it. You need to understand authority. But after you do it, you can always ask me why I did it. Why did I tell you to do that? I want you to understand. But that's not condition. That's not a condition of why you obey. Here's what, my, my logic was always this with them. Listen, if one day you get pulled over in a traffic stop by the police, and the police say, driver's license, registration, proof of insurance. And you say, why? <laughs> they're going to be very kind to you the first time. And they're going to say, again, driver's license, proof of insurance, registration. Why? I'm not giving you anything until you tell me why. You keep that up, you're going to jail. Because there's authority in life, and it's not conditioned upon your understanding. I can ask God why, but I can't make it a condition of my obedience to him. That, come, that becomes bartering. That becomes negotiating with God. And to negotiate with God puts me on level ground with God, which I am not. I am his servant. He is my Lord. He says, I do. You have authority in Christ, but you have authority of only what Christ has given you authority over. It's okay to ask God why. It's not okay to ask God why me. That's entitlement. And it's not okay to ask God why should I as a condition of obedience. This series is going to look at some of our deepest questions that we have of God. Next week, I want to go ahead and tell you, I'm going to try my best to answer a question that is probably on some of your minds. After 21 days of prayer and fasting, after believing God for things, and you hear about miracles that are happening in other people's lives and answered prayer, and maybe you're not there yet, and you're wondering, why has God not answered my prayer at this point? I want to talk to you about next week, why God seems to answer some prayers and not answer other prayers. Why does he do it in certain times for certain people and other times for other people? We're going to talk about that today, though. Why do bad things happen 
to good people. The book of Daniel, it's both a history book. We learn about the exile of Israel. You know, I was talking to someone after the first service and uh, they were talking about world history. And I, was, I, I said, you know, I remember kind of world ancient history in, in school. I wish I would have cared back then. Like I, I was like, you know, they're talking about Mesopotamia. They're talking about the Greek empire, the Roman empire. They're talking about the Babylonian empire. They're talking about all the, the iron age, all these things. And I go, whatever. Dead people from a long time ago, right? That's what I thought. And now that I'm reading scripture, I realize, God, there wasn't an existence of history and then God. God interwoven in all of history, working his will, his purpose in all of it. It is a book of history that tells us about the time where Israel was conquered by Babylon and moved into exile. The majority of them moved into exile, taken from their homeland and taken to Babylon. But it is also a prophetic book. It's a history book showing us that God had previously prophesied that they were going into exile because of, for 70 years because of disobedience and discipline from the Lord. But that God in his discipline was also accomplishing so much more. It wasn't just about punishment. It was about purpose too. And we don't understand that sometimes. All we can do, we can't think complex, can we? We think simple. If them propositions, if I do this, then this, if I do this, then this. And God is working some things out that we cannot even begin to imagine. Have you ever seen um, like, like something that is um, quilted or a tapestry on one side? It's beautiful. The other side is awful looking. Okay, that's what we see. We see the stitching on the other side and none of it makes sense. And then finally, when we get a full view of it, God has worked out this tapestry of his masterpiece in our life that we couldn't see him connecting all of the dots and bringing all the things together in those moments. All we see is the ugly side of hardship sometimes and suffering. And God is bringing his purpose about in those moments. This entire passage is about a prophecy as well about Soon coming, immediate and soon coming things. And then it's also a prophecy for end times. It's, it's literally what it's called a dualistic prophecy. Something will happen now, but it's also for the end time as well. It's important that we understand something. Daniel is one of the Israelites that's been exiled. He's not suffering right now. Daniel has been promoted. He is in power and authority. He's got all of his needs, everything. He has got the wealth that he needs. He's got the influence he needs. He's got the power that he needs, okay? He's not in a suffering place, but there are other people suffering at this moment in time. A few chapters prior, we find Daniel is suffering in the lion's den while his faith is being challenged in those moments, while other people are prospering. So here's what you need to understand. In moments where you're suffering, other people are still seeing good in their life. And when you're seeing good in your life, other people are probably having hardships in their life. On your worst day, somebody's firstborn child is being born. On your best day, someone is losing someone precious to them. And it reminds us that this whole tapestry is not about you or you, or you, or me alone. It is about God's people and God's purpose being poured out individually and collectively upon us so that his name will be glorified. And it's hard to see that though in those moments. 
Because all we can see are the things that are looking us right in the face at that moment. Just because we're serving God, it doesn't mean we're exempt from experiencing hardships at all. Suffering can be a, cho- can be a result of bad choices, but just because you're suffering doesn't mean you've made bad choices. I say this all the time just because I need you to hear me. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble, but take heart, I've already overcome the world. Jesus also said that God causes his son to rise on the evil and the good, and he causes it to reign on the just and the unjust, on the righteous and the unrighteous. That there are times in life where you're going to see good, and there are times in life where you are going to suffer and endure hardships. It is not necessarily an indication of God removing his presence from your life. It's God doing a work in your life that you cannot understand at that moment. One of the greatest things you can understand is when you endure suffering, when bad things happen in your life, God is still in control when bad things happen. He is still in control when bad things happen. Do you know that the first king of Babylon, the one that conquered Israel, his name was Nebuchadnezzar. He was an evil king. He later, the Bible tells us later, he surrendered his life to the Lord. But he was an evil king, vicious, awful. And yet this man, the Bible says, God called him before he ever bowed his knee to the Lord. God said, Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. He called an evil man his servant. Why? Because God is able to take even the most evil person and make them do his will if he wants to. That God is able to work his will and his promises through the good in life, but also even the things that you think are evil, God is not bound by that and limited by that. God is a limitless God. Can I just tell you something? You need to to just seal that in your heart right now. It's election season. And if your candidate wins, God is still in control. And if your candidate doesn't win, God is still in control. If God is able to use an evil man like Nebuchadnezzar and make him do things in order to accomplish the will of the Father, God is able to still be in control when bad things happen to you. It's hard to see that. It's hard to understand it. God tells Daniel, he says, what's going to happen is the Babylonian empire is going to be conquered by the Medes and the Persian, the Medo-Persian empire. I'm not here to give you a big history lesson. He said, that's going to happen. You need to understand what's coming up. That did happen. He gave him that vision in the second year of Belshazzar's reign, 551 BC. In 539 BC, the Medo-Persians came in and they conquered Babylon. 12 years prior, I mean, 12 years after He gives him this 12 years prior to it actually happening. He says, this is what's going to happen. And then he says, let me tell you what else is going to happen. Later down the line, which we find out is 220 years later, the Greek empire will come in and they will overthrow the Medo-Persian empire. 
And it is just as the scripture says it is going to be because there's going to be a great king. His name is Alexander the Great. He's going to conquer all of the known world. And then after, at the height of his power, he is going to die and his kingdom is going to be split up into four kingdoms just as the prophecy says. And none of them will be as great as the prior. And two of them will have a huge impact on history. The two that are to the south and the east, the Syrian portion and the Egyptian portion. Seleucid and Ptolemy, the rulers all of those are going to fight continually over the land of Israel and God is going to use that to accomplish his purpose. 12 years prior to it happening, 220 years prior to the next thing happening. And then he says it's also something to do with the very end of time. God is still in control even when bad things are happening in your life. So, What do we need to know when bad things happen to good people? Let me give you three quick things. Number one is this. God limits how long suffering will last. He limits the length and the scope of it. Here's what, notice what it says in verse 13 and 14. It says, then I heard two holy ones talking to each other. One of them asked, how long will the events of this vision last? How long will the rebellion that causes desecration stop the daily sacrifices? How long will the temple in heaven's army be trampled on? And the other replied, it will take 2,300 evenings and mornings, and then the temple will be made right again. It will take 2,300 evenings and mornings. Long before it ever exists, God's already limited it. He said, this is the time frame. There's a limit on it. There's a time that God is going to allow. There's a time that God is allowing for the suffering and hardship of sin's impact on this world. There's a time that God is limiting whatever hardship that you are facing. Listen to me. There is a start and an end to it. God's going to bring purpose out of it. We'll look in just a moment at that. But there's a start and an end to it. If you're enduring hardships and difficulty right now, I promise you, you're not going to be there forever. Because God's in control. And he limits those things. The problem is, we're not privy to that information. We don't know how long. We just know God's already determined it. In the book of Job... The Bible tells us that Job undergoes suffering like no one has ever seen. And it tells us that God is using Job to bring glory to his name. That there's this dialogue that takes place between Satan and God. And he says, Satan says, look at, look at Job. He's your servant, yeah, but you're blessing him. If you take your hand of blessing off him, he won't bless you. He'll curse you. And God says, no, he won't. I trust him. He'll bring glory to my name. But he says... Here's what you can do, and here's what you can't do, and here's how long it'll last. Now, we read that. We read that, and we think, all right, Job, you got this. Job didn't read Job. He doesn't know all of that. He just knows hardships there. He knows his life feels like it's falling apart. And he has to put his trust in the God who is in control and has limited the things that he's going to face. And trust him in that. Psalm 30, verse 5 says this. For God's anger lasts only a moment, but his favor lasts a lifetime. Weeping may last through the night, but joy comes with the morning. There are different forms of joy. 
There's joy in getting what you want, right? How many of you are happy when you get what you want? Let me see your hand. Yeah. There's joy when you get what you want. There is joy when everything seems to be going your way, right? You know, when the bank account's good, when the cars are in the driveway, when Junior's bringing home A's and B's and not talking back, right? There's joy when everything's going right. But can I just tell you something? The joy that comes after sorrow is sweeter because it ushers in a new day and new hope. It's that joy because there's a line in the sand. There's a demarcation when you realize that weeping has ended and joy has come. There is a limit to the time and the scope that God allows for your suffering and your hardship. And you can rest in that. Number two is this, is that God knows how to redeem suffering. He knows how to redeem suffering. Listen to me. Every pain you will ever feel or have ever felt, God knows how to redeem that. And it may not feel like it right now, but God knows how to redeem it. In verse 14, again, it says, the other replied, it'll take 2,300 evenings and mornings. And then, then the temple will be made right again. It's going to be difficult, but I'm going to redeem it. First Peter chapter 5, verse 10 says this, In his kindness, God called you to share in his eternal glory by means of Christ Jesus. So after you have suffered a little while, he will restore, support, and strengthen you, and he will place you on a firm foundation. This is Simon Peter, who has been at the height of glory on the Mount of Transfiguration. He's seen so many miracles. He has, with Jesus, walked on water. He has abandoned Jesus at the cross, and he has seen the miraculous take place in his life, in leadership, in the church. And he says, after you suffer, God knows how to put you back on a firm foundation. After difficulty, God knows how to put you back right. That's why 2 Corinthians 4, 17 says, as for our present troubles are small, they won't last very long. And yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last forever. What it says is this, in comparison to the glory that awaits, the trials and troubles that you have now are light and momentary. They don't feel light and momentary at this moment, but when you get a glimpse of who God is and one day when you see him face to face, you will realize the greatness of his glory is worth every bit of the lightness of the troubles that you thought would overtake you. Because God knows how to redeem suffering. After all this suffering, God does what he says and he brings his people out of Babylon back into Israel. And God did what he said in this prophecy. He brought the Greek empire into power. And what followed the Greek empire was the Roman empire in power. None of that looks like that it is something that God is redeeming. His people suffered greatly at the hands of the Babylonians, at the hands of the Medo-Persians, at the hands of the Greeks, at the hands of the Romans. 
And yet in the Greek empire, an evil empire, God does something that had not been done before. Not since the Tower of Babel. Because the Greeks, when they conquered the world, they imposed their language on everyone. So if you wanted to communicate or if you wanted to trade and have commerce and do business, you had to learn Greek. And for the first time since the Tower of Babel, there was a common language along in the earth so that the gospel of Jesus Christ could be told to everyone. Language was not a barrier anymore. It could be told, it could be written down in the New Testament in Greek, and people would understand it for the first time. When the Roman Empire came into being, God used the Roman Empire to put a system of safe passageways and road work. What I mean, they they made roads, but they made them safe by what's called the Roman peace. That, That is a misnomer because the peace was exacted by threats. I mean, it was, if you try to steal on these roads, everybody's gonna see you in the next town hanging on a cross. You steal from this person and cause problems, we will kill you and execute you in cruel fashion. But for the first time, now there is a common language to share the gospel and there are peaceful roads that it can travel all across the world. Two evil empires. God establishing something so that he gets all things ready for Jesus Christ to to send his son, Jesus Christ and the gospel. That's why Galatians 4, 4 says when God, when the time had fully come, when God got all things ready, then he sent forth his son. You can't see it at the moment you're suffering. They couldn't see it when the Greeks were ruling over them. They couldn't see it when the Romans were ruling over them. But God is working all of these things out to bring the greatest blessing we would ever know in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, for our lives. Because God knows how to redeem suffering. The third thing is that God brings good to his people even through suffering. James chapter one, verses two through four. Verse two says, dear brothers and sisters, when troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Nobody's got that on their vanity in the morning. (laughs) Nobody. But it doesn't make it less true because he goes on and says, for you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. So let it grow. For when your endurance is fully developed, you will be perfect and complete and needing nothing. Romans eight twenty eight, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose for them. Philippians 3, verse 10. Now I have given up everything else. I have found it to be the only way to really know Christ and to experience the mighty power that brought him back to life again and to find out what it means to suffer and to die with him. Another translation says, I want to know Christ. I want to know him in the power of his resurrection. But I also want to know him in the fellowship of his suffering. I want to know that everything that I face, whether it be in power or suffering, he is with me and I will know him deeply. It's so easy for us to get caught up in the moment of our suffering 
And we try to define God's goodness by what we're currently going through. Listen to me. God's goodness is not defined by my suffering. God's goodness is defined by his suffering. Listen. And if you're suffering, I'm not here to tell you it's fair. It's not fair that you're enduring hardship and financial difficulties. It's not fair that you lost your job. It's not fair that you're at odds with your children. It's not fair that you've been maligned and criticized by those you care about. It's not fair that you're sick or you received a diagnosis. It's not fair. But I need you to know something. It wasn't fair for us to have sinned and come short of the glory of God. And Jesus, the Son of God, willingly said, I'll be the sacrifice. I'll be the lamb. It's not fair that someone who lived a perfect life paid a price for our sins. It's not fair. But oh, how I need that. And if God, if he says in his word, if you as earthly parents know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more does your father in heaven? There are going to be moments that are difficult in your life. But you need to know, God is completely in control. He is limited to time and the scope of it. He knows how to redeem your suffering and he knows how to bring good out of it, even when you can't see it. Would you bow your heads, close your eyes? The very reason Jesus suffered and died was to give you the relationship God intended to have with you from the very beginning. And the sin separated. And if you're in this place or you're watching online, you know that things weren't right between you and the Lord when you came in this place. They're not right right now. But you're making a decision to follow him. Just pray this prayer with me right now. Lord Jesus, I thank you for what you have done. I thank you that you are the son of God, that you are the perfect lamb of God, that you, you paid the price for my sins. And I ask you to forgive me of my sins. But I'm also, I'm not, I'm just, I'm not asking just for forgiveness. I yield my life to you now, to your lordship. Lead me, guide me by your word and by your spirit. You are my Lord, you're my savior, you're my king, you're my hope. I live and exist to serve you. I'm gonna ask everyone in this room to just pray this prayer of profession with me. Say, Jesus, I give you my life. One more time, Jesus, I give you my life. Now with your heads bowed and your eyes closed, no one looking around except the ministry team and me. I'm not here to embarrass you, I'm not here to call you out. I wanna pray for you this week. If that's you, you say, Pastor, I know things weren't right between you and the Lord, me and the Lord when I came in here, but I'm making a decision to follow him for the first time or the first time in a long time. Pray for me this week. If that's you, would you raise your hand really high just for, just for a moment? Keep it up. 
Thank you so much. Just keep it up just a moment, please. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Amen. Amen. You can put them down. Heavenly Father, we thank you now for lives that have been changed, lives that have been yielded to you. Hope has been restored. I pray now that what they came in here with, Lord, the weight of sin and shame would be lifted off of their shoulders. And what they feel now is joy that your word says is unspeakable and full of glory. That that would fill their hearts. In these next few moments, Lord, as we pray for each other, for those in this room who have needs, who are experiencing difficulty, I pray that faith arise. And as they bring it to you and have someone pray with them today, I pray that as faith arises, Lord, that you would move in mighty ways in your perfect time, in your perfect way to accomplish your great will in our lives. We give you praise for it in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. I'm going to ask you to stand with me, please. I'm going to ask our prayer team to come down front. If you have a need, whether that's a physical need, financial need, emotional need, relational, whatever the need is, I'm going to invite you to come and have someone pray with you and believe that God is truly enough and he's in control and he's going to meet your need right now. So as we sing together and we worship together, I'm going to invite you. If you have a need, please come down and allow someone to pray with you right now.
Heavenly Father, we thank you right now for your decision to be good to us. You didn't have to be. But you decided long ago to display your love and your goodness and your glory to us. And today we receive that now in Jesus' name. Even in our hardships, even in our difficulties, we know and we declare you are good. And when you bring us out, we'll declare that you are good. And when we tell the story of your faithfulness, we'll declare that you are good. Thank you, Lord, for all you have done for us. Thank you for redeeming us, saving us, changing us, empowering us, delivering us, guiding us every day of our life. And Lord, for all of your good things, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Come on, let's give the Lord praise. Amen. Amen. Hey, the Bible says there's rejoicing in the presence of angels when one person gives their heart to Jesus Christ. We ought to celebrate eight people that gave their hearts to Christ today. Amen. 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 Listen, if you made that decision today or in the last few weeks, we'd love to help you get started on this walk with Jesus. Some of our grow team will be down front. Um, just come talk to them. Give us two minutes of your time. Um, or you can go outside in the atrium at Connection Point. Uh, someone will help you there as well. And if you'd like to get uh, some information about how to get plugged in here at Mount Perrin North, how you can find out your spiritual gifts or your passions, anything like that, um, there's a card in front of you that just says connect. Take that card, fill it out, take it back to the Connection Point. We'd love to help you get uh, plugged in as well. Allow me the privilege today before you leave to bless you according to Numbers chapter six. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And the Lord turn his face towards you and give you peace in Jesus' name. Let's give our response from Psalm 19. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. God bless you folks, love you. Have a great day. Thanks for listening to today's message. If you would like to learn more about North, be sure to check out our website at mountparinnorth.com. If you have any questions, you can email us at info at or give us a call at 770-578-9081. And if you're in the Marietta, Georgia area, we'd love to have you join us for worship next Sunday at 945 or 1115 a.m. Again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week.